I would love it if you would grab your Bibles and open them up with me. Uh, we'll be in Leviticus 16 and heading there. As we've been doing for these sermons, though, we'll be hopping quite a bit. So you may want to take uh, a thumb, put it on the, on the table of contents, maybe, if you, if you so need. Um, but we'll be starting Leviticus 16, 16. However, I do have quite a few things to say in preface, so we may take a winding path to start there. And I know we say those words a lot, the, the words, grab your Bibles and come with me too. We say those like pretty much every Sunday, but I'm always reminded what, it is, what a blessing it is to do that, uh, to delve deeply into God's word and oftentimes to wrestle with it as a lot of what it says isn't sunshine and rainbows. Sometimes it's, it's really difficult topics. Like we heard last week with Pastor Ben, as he said, talk to us about the reality of sin. So what I want us to do, and keep in the mindset of, as we approach God's word today, is to take the mindset of Jacob. Right? Jacob, when he wrestled with God, said, I will not let go until you bless me. We cling to God's word because it's a blessing to know our God and Savior. And so we wrestle with God's word to know our God and Savior. That is something that I'd like us to keep in mind today as we wade back into a discussion on another topic that is, again, quite heavy, quite heady. And I do say back into because... In large part, we're rejoining a conversation that, like I said, Pastor Ben started us on last week as he talked about the realities of sin. We believe in the reality of sin was the title of his sermon last week. And understanding sin and what it means to sin is a vital discussion to hold in our minds when we look at our topic for this week, which is we believe that Jesus died for our sins. The true depth of our broken relationship with God is revealed in a lot of ways. And some of those Ben was able to go through uh, last week. And even as we talk today, I invite you to continue thinking about those implications as well as the other ones that I know you can think of because we can't cover everything in 40 to 45 minutes. But I encourage you to remember those as we talk today or go back and listen to it again because again, all of these are recorded. They're online on our website, on our uh, podcast channels and all of those things, but the uncomfortable truth is that our sin isn't harmless, but it in fact harms greatly and above all else creates a rift between us and God that we cannot cross. One of the things that Ben also keyed us into last week was this extended metaphor that the Bible uses in many different ways. One of weight. Glory has this connotation of weight as its word in Hebrew, kavod, is also heaviness. And we see that glory, we feel the pressure of the perfection, the goodness of God compared with our own imperfections. And in the face of that, our imperfections, our sin weigh us down. In Psalm 38, the psalmist writes, for my iniquities go over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Sin separates and burdens humanity. So we want to talk about what God has done to mend 
this rift and to lift this burden. What he has done through his son, through this second person of the Trinity, remember God the Son, is something truly incredible and something that is honestly kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around. But when we do, we're greeted with ultimate hope and awe at God who chose to take our place and take our punishment so that we could be reconciled and come back to him. This is the divine solution that Pastor Ben talked about last week. And that's where we're going this morning, because this is what God's word says about it. So I want to do a couple things this morning. The first is I want to define a bunch of terms. You might notice that we don't have an ology this morning, coming from theology, then to Christology, then to pneumatology, then to hamartiology. You'd expect the train to continue, but it doesn't. Uh, it, here's where it stops. There's, there's not an ology for this. What we are talking about instead is the atonement. And often the capital A atonement is how it's, it's often referred to. Um, so first we'll be defining that term and what we mean by that this morning. The second thing I want to do, which I will spend much more time on, is to take a look at the atonement from several different spots in scripture. There is a huge hundreds of hundreds and thousands of years story being told in this book, untold amounts of time sometimes. And through this incredible story, there are threads and themes that run throughout them. And one of them is this concept of atonement. Because atonement has always been God's rescue plan for us. It wasn't something that he decided to do in the New Testament. It was something that he was always looking forward to. Something that he was always hinting at. Something he was always pointing to. And so I want to show you that this morning as, as we stop at several different spots throughout the Bible and see that it's pointing to atonement, that God is always pointing back to his rescue plan for us. So before we do that, and before we get into God's word this morning, won't you pray with me as we approach this? Dear Lord, we just, uh, we just thank you for your word. Lord, that we have this freedom and opportunity to, to dig into it, to open it, to do so freely and publicly and proclaim what it says, God, that we have um, this opportunity to see what you said instead of what we think. And Lord, even though it's often at times hard to understand, Lord, I just pray that we would wrestle with it as Jacob wrestled with you um, and that we wouldn't let go of it, that we would revel in the struggle of learning to know you because nothing worth doing something hard is usually worth doing we pray these things in jesus name amen so let's start on that first thing right let's talk terms and i promise there's no vocab quiz unless you really want me to i could um but i not required uh atonement as a word and as a concept is very present throughout the story of the Bible, right? This, this idea of atonement is to bring two estranged parties back together by making reparations or reconciling their differences or grievances so that they can be reconciled, that they can come back into relationship, whatever relationship that would 
be. So as you can imagine, the Bible being a, a human story, and humans, humans have a, a, a tendency to be habitual line crossers and breaking relationships all the time, there's a lot of atonement that happens in the Bible, sometimes between other humans, um, but that's just kind of what we do. It's, it's so much so to the fact that even in English, we have a bunch of idioms to express this, or attempt to express this idea of atonement. Uh, one is the saying, forgive and forget, which if you've ever been in a situation where you need to be forgiven or to forgive someone else, you probably realize that this saying is stupid. In any significantly broken relationship, there is no forgetting the slight. You can forgive, but you probably can't forget. That's just how these things work. That's not dealing with the problem at hand. That's not making atonement. If any, signif- any significantly broken relationship, you need to not forget those things, but to atone for them. Sometimes you need to atone to each other if we're talking about us, you know, humans breaking a relationship with each other. Atonement and reconciling through atonement is work. It requires dealing with a problem, not just burying it and forgetting it. A saying that I like better than forgive and forget, it's let's bury the hatchet. This is a saying that came from the practice of, of Native Americans, in particular the Iroquois, um, to bury weapons in times of peace. They're like, we don't need this, we will, we will bury these. There'd be a ceremony even where the two sides of this conflict would come together, come to a peaceful conclusion where reparations or whatever else would be, would be agreed to, and then they would each bury a hatchet in that site and, and make peace. They did this with the English, they did this with, with each other in, in between their own tribes, things like that. That ceremony, and out of it, the saying that we've carried forward, let's bury the hatchet, carries much more of this heart of atonement than forgive and forget does. There is harm done in a relationship when it's broken, and it needs to be addressed and dealt with. There has to be payment and changes often that need to happen for people to reconcile. It's not something that is, can be simply moved on from. Which is why atoning is different than simply reconciling. Don't get me wrong. Reconciliation is the end goal of atonement. But there's often a bit more to reconciliation than just getting over ourselves and getting along. You know, I used to fight with my brother a lot. And my parents, my mom especially, would often say, why can't you just get along? It's like, well, because we're boys, number one. But there were, there were things that we needed to work through. And we did. I live with my brother now. He's one of my closest friends. So it worked. But it was a lot more than, can't you just get along? We had to bury the hatchet. We had to atone to each other. Now that brings us to the biblical picture of atonement. And in this case, we're not talking two sides that have wronged each other, but biblical atonement is showing us this story about two very different sides. One is flawless and blameless, and the other is desperately broken and depraved. Can you guess which is which? (laughs) Biblical atonement is centered on humanity sinning against a perfect and most holy God.
God. And dealing with the gap that is left. That gap that is insurmountable for the wrongdoers, who are us, to make reparations for what we have done. The reality of sin shows us that this is a massive problem. The only way for things to be resolved in a just way is to carry out the punishment that is due. The wages of sin is death. That's the first part of Romans 6.23. We'll get to the second part, don't worry. But the wages of sin is death. Eternal, infinite death for our sin against an eternal and infinite God. Another characteristic of biblical atonement is that it is specifically substitutionary atonement. You can see this reflected in our doctrinal statement, of which I printed a portion for you on your notes. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross as a representative, vicarious, substitutionary sacrifice. Substitutionary atonement is when a third innocent party intercedes between these two sides that need to be reconciled back to one another, and the punishment or the atonement is meted out on that innocent third party. We'll see this kind of atonement throughout our time together this morning, and as we see how atonement is portrayed through Scripture, all leading up to Calvary. In the most staggering picture of substitutionary atonement that we could possibly have. And so, with our terms defined now, that brings us to the story of Scripture. Don't worry, we're getting to Leviticus 16, I promise. I know it's taking a while. Humanity's sin started in Genesis 3. And right, I'm not going to spend too, time, too much time, time on this. Pastor Ben has, has walked us through Genesis 3. Last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to those. But Genesis 3 jumpstarts this cycle. And almost immediately, we became humans as we know them now. Right? In Genesis 4, the first murder happens. It's, the, the consequences are immediate. We are sinful by nature. Humanity as we know it now is sinful by nature. And so we'd continue down this path. We'd continue to sin, and surprise, surprise, death would rear its head one way or another. Not too long after Genesis 4, the entire world is wiped out by a worldwide flood because the world is simply too evil. We haven't even left the first book of the Bible yet. And already we see the devastating effects of sin. But even during this deep downward spiral, God would begin to peel the curtain back every once in a while. Bit by bit, he would show his plan, what his plan for humanity is. Even in Genesis 3, when the curse is being delivered to humanity, he tells them of his plan, this descendant who will crush the head of the serpent. Again in Genesis 22, when Abraham nearly sacrifices his son, but his hand is stayed in the last moment as God is pointing forward to, what, this is what I'm going to do for you later. As we keep going through the Bible, we come through Exodus and we come to the law, we see the many systems that served to focus people's attention on God and who he is. And that includes the many laws regarding 
the sacrifices, and also the different festivals. Uh, Remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Jay said that when you look at these festivals, you see the gospel. Well, when we focus in on the idea of atonement, there is a specific day where Israel was to pay special attention to the process. And if you were with us back in last October, you might remember this day as we had a guest speaker, Dr. Tim Sigler, out here to talk about its importance. I'm talking about the day of atonement or Yom Kippur. And this is why I have us here in Leviticus 16 to start, which we are finally getting to. Thank you for your patience. And so I just want to highlight a couple passages from this text. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Basically, this whole chapter is talking about what, this, what does this day of atonement look like? What are the systems involved in using this? Uh, what I want to read for us right now, I want to start in 6 through 10, and then we'll jump to the, the end of it in a little bit. But I'm going to start here in Leviticus 16, verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the, uh, fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. This passage begins to show us the fundamentals of this ceremony, right? Aaron, or the high priest, uh, would make an atoning sacrifice for himself first, right? Recognizing that the high priest was a human. He was imperfect, sinful, and still needed his sins to be atoned for before he could act as the intermediary between God and Israel. So a, a bull would be sacrificed for him, and he would be ritually washed as is common for entering the temple and doing priestly duties and all of these things. Then they brought forward the, the second sacrifices, which were these pair of goats. And these would have been animals without spot or blemish, as would have been custom for sin offerings and the like. One of these goats is killed for the sins of the people, but the other one would take the sins of the people and go out into the wilderness. When we come to the end of chapter 16, we see this final command regarding this day of atonement and how it was to be practiced. So I'm going to jump down to verse 29 in chapter 16 and read through the end of the chapter. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. 
So that's the gist of the Day of Atonement. And you could hear it throughout there, atonement, atonement, atonement. A day focused on reconciliation with God. As Israel would, would sacrificially cleanse the temple by an innocent third party, right? This is substitutionary in nature. Uh, and just like many other feasts, this day reveals what God's plan is for the future. In truth, there's quite a lot of things in here that point forward to Jesus, that point forward to God's plan. But I just want to cover a couple of them as we have much to say still, and I'm already 20 minutes in. This plan is, again, distinctly substitutional, substitutionary. The sacrifices needed to happen for atonement to be made. This is something that we can tell from the rest of the sacrifices as well, all of them requiring the same kind of sin-offering animal, a unblemished, not deformed in any way, good, usually male, animal. It was highly valuable in that time, right? This is property, this is livelihood. And they would kill that animal as part of the system of atonement, repeatedly, right? This ceremony was to be done every year. And then the sin ones were to be done throughout the year for your personal sins. Like, there's so much blood being spilled for atonement. The distinct blood price that comes with sin needs to be fulfilled by something. But these ones, because they, kept, they, they weren't able to fulfill that price in full because it just, they just kept having to sacrifice them over and over. They weren't perfect. They weren't equal to all the sin that is in people's lives. And they weren't capable of dealing with it once for all. In fact, in many ways, it was, in some sense, a sort of stalling mechanism And we see more of this in the second thing that I want us to lift from the Day of Atonement, which is that there are two kinds of sacrifices listed here. There's the substitutionary ones, the ones that die for people, which is first the bull for the high priest, and then the goat, one of the goats for the rest of the people. But then there's this other goat, this second goat, this third sacrifice, which is the scapegoat. This is a symbol that showed God's patience as he continued to work towards his permanent solution. Like I said earlier, the the scapegoat was to have people's sin conferred onto it, right? That was what the laying of hands on its head was to display. And it would be sent out into the wilderness, sent away from the assembly. This is actually mirroring Adam and Eve being sent away from the garden of Eden and away from the presence of God because then he could spare them from the immediate consequence of sin being in his presence. All these sacrifices this day, they'd be repeated more as a way to remember the gravity and the weight of sin as they continue to live in it rather than fixing it completely. This is God punting. And as God's plan progressed, he revealed more and more pieces of the puzzle, continuously pointing forward to a final 
Day of Atonement and a final sacrifice that would serve to finish the work of reconciliation once and for all. No more repeated cycles, no more repeated sacrifices. But until that day, Israel was to continuously come back to this symbol, continuously come back to these sacrifices, continuously come back to these festivals, this day of atonement, relying on God to bring about his justice according to his mercy and in his timing. Because as we continue to progress through the Bible story, we'll see this final solution to the problem of sin continue to unfold and clarify. Let's jump forward to another passage uh, much later in the story of the Bible. Uh, we're coming to somewhere, some, somewhere near the end of when the Old Testament was being written as Israel's been taken into Babylonian captivity and the prophet Isaiah was sent to prophesy to Israel about things coming soon and things coming a little later. So turn with me this time to Isaiah chapter 53. And as you do, I, I want to give a little more background. Because this section of Isaiah, which it's kind of stretches from chapter 40 to chapter 55, is God telling Israel about how he was faithful, how he will save them, how he'll hum- humiliate Babylon and bring about a refined and renewed and restored Israel back in, in their promised land, back in their home land. But in the midst of this, God takes their gaze and he casts it forward. He says, I am not even just talking about you at this point, but I'm talking about everyone. I'm talking about final plans. No longer just looking at the restoration of Israel to their homeland, but of salvation of humanity as a whole through this figure known to Isaiah simply as the Lord's servant. So Isaiah 53 kind of begins in the middle of a description of the servant. And that is the he that this passage refers to. So we'll go ahead and we're going to read all of Isaiah 53 uh, right here. As, and, just, and I'm inviting you to follow along or just simply listen. As the Lord describes a key part of his atoning plan for humanity. So this is Isaiah 53 starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of, the dry, out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off 
out of the land and of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. As God continues to peel back the curtains and show more and more of what is to come, it becomes clear that Israel's continued failing and downward spiral is indicative of humanity's failing and humanity's downward spiral. Our wayward hearts need a divine solution. And that is what God says here. When he says earlier than this, in chapter 52, where he says, Behold, my servant. Behold, the Messiah who will be the perfect substitute for every sinner. Behold, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who will baffle kings and be despised by people. A human. Behold, one human who will bear our griefs and be struck down for us, upon whom the Lord will put every iniquity, the bearer of God's wrath. This is the son of the woman who will crush the serpent's head, promised all the way back in Genesis 3. God is so clear about what this Messiah will do, who this Messiah will be, and what will happen to him. From Isaiah 53, we see this servant would be a human, right? Growing up from dry ground. He wouldn't be clearly impressive, but a humble person who would walk through his struggles alone, despised, not highly esteemed. And there's Jesus, an unimpressive carpenter's son, humble, bearing all the struggles of humanity, but doing so perfectly. Doing so not in sin. And despite this, when he went to the cross, he was abandoned by his disciples and family, and he walked through the suffering truly alone. From Isaiah 53, we see this suffering servant who will bear grief and sorrow. As the song, Hallelujah, What a Savior says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned, he stood. And then we see Jesus, who was whipped and mocked as he carried his cross up a hill. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. 
standing in our place. Like the sacrifices detailed in Leviticus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is described as a flawless sheep or lamb led to the slaughter. Perfectly innocent, but still silent. He had done no violence, no deceit in his mouth. But it was God's will that this be done, truly standing in the place that you and I deserved. I imagine Jesus well in the garden, thinking about all the things that would happen to him. I don't know exactly what went through his mind. I don't know, I don't know what was going through his mind at those moments when he was sweating drops of blood. But I, am, I like to think this passage could have been in there. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And in the face of that, Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done, Father. This is the sacrifice who can fully atone for this gap between us and God forever. This is the person who can reconcile us back to God to repair that relationship. It can't be a sheep or a goat or a bull. The cost is so much higher than what they can pay for. We required this bridge for this insurmountable gap to be the death of a perfect substitute who can fill that gap. Ultimately, all pictures and hints of atonement, as I said, it's a very much repeated theme throughout the Bible as humans hurt one another, as humans continue to stray farther and farther away from God. Every single picture and hint at atonement points us to the death of Jesus Christ on that old rugged cross at Calvary. He is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And he is the perfect sacrifice on the ultimate day of atonement, a final atonement by the perfect substitute. We're going to go to one more passage today. And it might be a little familiar to those of you who have been with us this past year as we're heading back to 2 Corinthians, which we wrapped up our uh, series in back in June. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I just want to finish out with the last bit of chapter 5, starting in verse 16. So won't you join me there? From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
We've spent a long time today talking about sacrifices and what was required to atone for our sin against a great God. And I think rightly so, because we saw in Isaiah 53 and now here that Christ is this perfect sacrifice, perfection in all forms to reconcile us to God. We cannot state the enormity of the wonder and glory of this event enough. Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, not only died to reconcile humanity back to God and back to himself, but also fulfilled God's wrath in that moment. Since Jesus died, many a martyr has been carried to crucifixion or other very terrible deaths with song on their lips. I'm not saying this to downplay what Jesus went through physically, because death on a cross is one of the most physically taxing and painful ways to die. It was surely agony as he pulled the weight of his body on the nails in his hands and feet just to take a breath. But there was a different reason that Christ was so distressed as he approached this event. And as I mentioned earlier, was sweating drops of blood in the garden. And I can't even imagine what it would be like to do what he did. Because he bore God's wrath for all the sins of humanity. The price Jesus paid wasn't something that just any human could do. It wasn't just dying for everyone. It was magnificent in scope and far-reaching in its implications. So remember that patience from before. The scapegoat sent away. God delaying his wrath, delaying his justice, waiting for his plans to come about. All of that wrath, past and future, being funneled directly onto Jesus on the cross. Being funneled into this one moment in time on the Son of God, nailed to a cross at Calvary. God is just. He doesn't turn his face away from evil. He confronts it. Even when the evil is our own thing and own doing, and he wants to have mercy on us. He may be merciful to delay that justice, but justice will be delivered. And it was. It was delivered unto Jesus and not unto us. Because in our place condemned, he stood. The slate was wiped clean because Jesus took the debt that we owed. He paid what we could not And our sin is no longer our burden to bear. He who knew no sin became sin for our sake, a perfect substitute for a final atonement. We want to be clear on a couple of things. This doesn't eradicate the gravity and the weight of sin. We want to remember everything that Ben said last week about what our sin does to us, our relationship with God, that it still continues to drive a wedge between us. Sin is still a really big issue simply because we have a way, the way, to deal with it doesn't mean it's no longer a big deal. Let's not be quick to abuse grace. 
to say I am saved by grace alone so I can do whatever I want. That is so far from the truth. God's mercy is not an excuse to sin, but an invitation into something that is so much more. What we are given in return is far more than simply the erasure or covering of sin. We are given relief from the burden and the opportunity to be a new creation. We're offered a new life. We'll talk more about this next week, but this is the heavy focus here in 2 Corinthians 5. We're no longer regarded by the flesh, but we are a new creation, one that has been bought at an extremely high price in order to be able to come back into relationship and live with God. If we think of 1 John, where John writes, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light as a sinner reveals all sorts of things, which is why we like to hide in the darkness. Walking in the light reveals corruption. It reveals sin. But by the blood of Christ in his atoning sacrifice, we can approach the light. We can walk in the light with confidence, knowing that we're covered by his sacrifice. So as we wrap up today, there's a couple of things I want to leave you with. I hope all of this weighs on your mind and on your heart, but in particular, I want to leave you off today thinking about rest. What does it truly mean to rest with Jesus? If we come back to that extended metaphor that I mentioned at the beginning, which I have brought up in reference several times now, sin is heavy. We are burdened by it. It crushes us. It weighs us down as we face the glory of God. But what Jesus says about this weight He says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. If we focus on the cross and on the atonement, we can leave the burden of sin and take up a new one. A burden that is much easier. Don't let the atonement be wasted. If you carry every weight as if it were the heaviest in your life, you will quickly grow tired and you will fail. Don't continue to, try, to, to strive in self-sufficiency to try and carry everything yourself, to do it on your own two feet. You've been invited by the blood of Christ to return to God. So let go. The focus is not on what you can do to lessen this gap anymore, but rather what Christ has done to close it completely. This is the only way. We need this. This isn't just one option. This is the only way for us to return and reconcile with God. The only way to go to heaven. The blood price must be paid one way or another. And the good news is that it's been paid in full. And more so. Even more so. Next week, Pastor Jay will come and talk to us about the resurrection and the inheritance that we gain through the atonement 
atoning blood of Jesus on the cross. So look forward to that next week. Until then, I want to pray for us. But before I do that, I want to read you one more verse from that song. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. If you're able, I invite you to stand with me and join me in prayer as we close today. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done, God. Just this plan that you set into motion so far at the beginning. We thank you for being a seeking and sending God that you didn't leave us to our own devices in this way, but you immediately began a rescue plan. That you began to put yourself out in the world and and show us, I'm coming, I'm doing it, I'll save you. Thank you for sending a perfect substitute, one fully man, fully divine, who not only understands us, but can be that perfect substitute and more in what you've invited us into. A perfect mediator, a perfect Lord. God, I pray that our hearts would be changed by this news. That we would take this Be humbled by it, yes, but also respond to it in joy, to be generous as you've been generous, to be kind as you've been kind, to be patient as you've been patient to us, to be good as you've been good to us. Lord, I pray that we would become every day more and more like our perfect substitute. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.